Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, do I have an accent? If so, what is it? We look at why Canadian English accents seem to have fewer variations than our neighbors in the U.S. The Material Girl, Madonna's heading out on a 35-date world tour, and it decided to launch it right here in Canada, in Vancouver. You hear from an avid fan who is thanking his lucky star today. And how is persistent food inflation hitting school food programs across Canada? And how would a national school food policy and the $1 billion to go along with it, promised by the federal liberals, help ease the strain? But first, if you're in the middle of a dry January, this may give you an added incentive. Consuming more than two standard alcoholic drinks per week increases your risk of heart disease, stroke, and cancer. That according to the Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction. Their advice, any reduction in drinking helps. And one of their recommendations, warning labels on alcohol containers. First up tonight, though, I'm sure you may have seen these new guidelines today. The Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction has released new alcohol and health guidelines, and they're pretty strict. Uh, Consuming more than two standard alcoholic drinks per week increases your risk of heart disease, stroke, or cancer. Um, It's called Canada's Guidance on Alcohol and Health, the final report. It was out last year. There were some consultations that happened after that. The advice, any reduction in drinking helps. The more you drink, the higher the risks are, and preferably consume no more than two drinks, uh, I guess, a week, right? Or on any given day, it says that's preferable, but really they're recommending far less than that. Don't forget, um, a drink is a 12-ounce serving of 5% alcohol, such as beer, or a 5-ounce glass of 12% alcohol, such as wine. That's considered low risk if you drink two of those a week. It really is a big, I mean, it's a lot less than were the guidelines a decade ago when it was no more than 15 drinks for men and 10 drinks for women per week to reduce long-term health risks. Right now, they're pretty much saying anything above a very small amount, you know, and you're taking your chances. Now, they're not telling everyone to quit drinking immediately. They're saying, here's what you need to know. Uh, The CCSA says new advice reflects thousands of studies in the last decade that link even small amounts of alcohol to several types of cancer. Uh, And based on these findings, the CCSA is also now making some recommendations. One of them is health warning labels that include the cancer risk on alcohol containers and labels that inform people of how many standard drinks are in every container. Joining me now with everything on this is Dr. Tim Namey. He's director of the Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research at the University of Victoria. He also happens to be one of the 23 panelists who contributed to the new guidelines. Dr. Namey, thank you for your time. Oh, Ben, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. You know, we always, I think we kind of knew what was coming because we've been talking about these guidelines for a bit, but these are, this is really a significant change in what is being recommended to Canadians. So what was, what were the old recommendations that are now a decade old? How much are they different now? Uh, I'm an American and I only showed up in Canada three years ago. So I, okay. I, I don't remember right. the exact, right? actually I do, but the point is they, as you suggest, they've come down quite a bit for broader context for your listeners, Ben, is that, you know, um, Countries around the world periodically update their guidance around drinking and alcohol. And what we've seen in the past five years is that the UK, France, the Netherlands, Australia, they've all lowered their drinking guidelines. So I don't think Canada is an anomaly. And the reason for that is that very simply is that the evidence has evolved and we're better at um, doing better studies and understanding how to, you know, how to basically the limitations of those studies. One of the takeaways from it is that the level of drinking at which risk starts to increase is lower than was previously appreciated. So, in fact, we start to see the risk of alcohol-related or alcohol-caused, I should say, health problems start to increase over as little as two drinks per per week. We're not just recommending one level, however, because we recognize that, you know, that's going to, for most Canadians who drink that, you know, some people will want to try to reduce their consumption that much. But the basic message and the science behind the guidelines is the same as it was. That part is the same, which is that if you drink alcohol, drinking less means living more and living better. So I think that's the main, the simple takeaway. Yeah, and I, I suppose it, the, the the question, of course, is why? What have you found about the health risks? Uh, what are the health risks associated with even, uh, as according to these guidelines, what we would have considered in the past a fairly moderate amount of drinking? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, again, things are broadly consistent, but I mean, there, you know, what we like to think of is that some people are reasonably well aware of like things caused by very heavy drinking, like birth defects, liver cirrhosis, but alcohol is a contributor to about 50 different conditions that, you know, are lethal in humans. And many of them, alcohol is not the sole cause, but an important contributing cause. So above really quite low levels of consumption, actually alcohol is a contributor to heart disease, like heart attacks to irregular heartbeats, like atrial fibrillation to heart failure. And then a big one is cancer. So very few Canadians are aware of the alcohol cancer link. Uh, alcohol is classified and has been for decades by the World Health Organization as a class one carcinogen. That means that there's excellent human studies, there's excellent animal studies, and there's lab studies all showing that alcohol causes certain cancers and some of the most common ones, including breast cancer and colon cancer. So that's really an important and emerging area of research and of, of hopefully of awareness too among the public. Were there any specifics when it came to women's health? Yes and no. I think the guidelines are meant to be broadly applicable to the general population. It's interesting at the level of risk, at, you know, sort of at under seven to 10 drinks per week, the risks for women and men are actually quite similar. For both women and men, you start to see the risk of an alcohol-related health problem go up over two drinks per week, and then particularly above six drinks per week. Both of those go up the same. So actually, our guidance for men and women at those what we call the low and the moderate risk zones are the same. But women and men, having said that, face different risks. Of course, you know, with women, there's reproductive health issues. Women are often victimized in violence, not that men can't be also. Women are at risk for, you know, more at risk for breast cancer because 99% of breast cancers, you know, occur among women. But we have to remember that men account for actually like three quarters of the alcohol caused deaths in the population, simply because more men drink and they drink more than women. So, you know, yes, women, if you, for any woman drinking the same amount as a man, her individual risk is a little bit higher because she weighs less or whatever. But in general, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that men are the main contributors to and the main people who accrue the, the harms from alcohol. You know, over the years, we've often been told there is sort of a healthy amount of drinking, right? There's been some mixed messaging out there. Uh, should we yeah. be rethinking that altogether? Well, I think the health halo has come off of moderate drinking. You know, that said, I think that consuming modest amounts of alcohol a few drinks a week is is not, you know, again, is associated with very low or negligible risk. But the idea of health benefits from alcohol, even at low levels, has kind of fallen by the wayside. You know, what we would like is for people, again, across all levels of consumption, this idea, and this is, again, consistent science over decades, is that when it comes to health, drinking less is better than drinking more. And I think that's the, the main message. Dr. Tim Namey is with us this half hour. He's director of the Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research at the University of Victoria. Uh, Dr. Namey, we've spoken about this before, but uh, it seems once again that uh, with these new guidelines, there is now another push to try to get warning labels placed on alcohol. How would that work and why do you think it's necessary? Well, to take a step back, we're excited about these guidelines because like most national guidelines, they are addressing individual people. But what these guidelines do, which is new for Canadian guidelines and, and other national guidelines, too, is that for the first time, we're introducing some recommendations to, you know, to government, because we all know that making change as individuals is extremely difficult. We need to have the, the environment that kind of is backing, you know, the, the, the sort of backs up those suggested changes with things that make alcohol a little less affordable and a little more inconvenient to get at all hours of the day and night. But a critical piece that really ties very explicitly into the development of the guidelines that are based on drinking levels, after all, and what is labeling drinks, as you mentioned. Let's think about other substances that are legally sold in Canada. When you buy a pack of cigarettes, there's, war there's information on the label. When you buy cannabis products, there's extensive warning information. When you buy a can of peas, for God's sake, in the supermarket, you know, like, what's the serving size of peas? How many calories are in the peas? And how mm -hmm. much calcium is in the can of peas? You have none of this information on, on, on alcohol. You would not know that you're purchasing an intoxicating, addictive carcinogen that is a leading behavior-related cause of, of health problems. More importantly, as it pertains to the guidelines, there's no information on how many standard drinks are in that bottle of whiskey or how much 
how many ounces constitutes a standard drink. So we'd like to see that. We'd like to see some warning labels, particularly around cancer or warning, and then also ideally calorie information as well. Yeah, because there's very little information at all right on those products right now Absolutely. when you think about it. What are some of the other recommendations, uh, some of the other things you think would help here? Because you're right, oftentimes it's, you know, when it came to something like smoking, um, the involvement of the government made a big difference, I think, when it came to smoking rates, really aggressively trying to push those down. Yeah. Well, again, what works in public health is, you know, individual change is important, but what's more effective is societal change. And we shouldn't call it, I mean, government is expressed through you know, our, our democratic processes. Yeah, but the, basically the things that really can kind of shift what we want is for people who want to drink. Yes, they should absolutely be able to drink. And there are many reasons why people drink or don't drink besides health. That's really important. We're, we're a health document. But the things that, you know, are consistently over the decades shown to help is if alcohol is a little bit less, you know, you don't want cheap alcohol, basically. So taxes, minimum prices, um, making it a little bit less available, you know, and convenient to get at all hours of the day and night, and not having it so heavily promoted. So those are the kinds of things. But labeling, I think, in particular, is another policy that ties, you know, because of the quantitative, you know, the the fact that we're basing our risk zones on, you know, numbers of drinks, that that's sort of a common sense thing that we think is an important policy offshoot of this project. I mean, one of the conflicts that we always see here and it exists with lotteries to some extent it exists with cigarettes still to to a smaller extent but still to some extent is that governments make big profits off the sale of alcohol so Mm -hmm. do you find that a challenge sometimes when it comes to trying to get your message through that these things need to be done in -hmm. a more aggressive way well it is interesting because as you know government entities or as taxpayers i guess there is this conflict of interest, if you will. Like on the one hand, we're supposed to be concerned about health, but on the other hand, we're... But I think when it comes to alcohol, you know, Canadian taxpayers are getting a like a totally a raw deal. Mm -hmm. In all 13 Canadian provinces and territories, when you add up the costs of alcohol to the government, to the taxpayer, not not to counting the cost to individuals who drink too much or or people who may be victimized in other people's drinking, Mm -hmm. but to the government... The government actually loses money on every single drink of alcohol sold in every province and territory in, in, in Canada. So I don't think that, you know, raising the prices to a certain extent or, or reducing the sale of alcohol actually at the, in, in the way things are currently would actually save the government some money. And just a reminder to listeners what the new guidelines are, because sometimes it can be difficult. To, but what exactly are the new guidelines when it comes to sort of the minimal the minimal amount yeah. of drinking you should be doing. Well, the long, sh- the, the 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 over the, the sort of headline is that when it comes to alcohol and health, less is better, or you know, less alcohol means more living, more more better quality of life and longer life. That's the headline. And what we do is we have, you know, instead of telling everyone to get down to a we have risk zones. So you know, low risk, which is basically very very little or no risk, is up to a couple of drinks a week, and then intermediate risk is up to six drinks a week. And by the time you're over that, your risk of an alcohol caused death is actually greater than one in a hundred. So we the, the higher risk zones go from seven and higher. But we do that just for ease of communication. The bottom line is that the more you drink, the higher your risk. And you know, any reduction in risk, particularly at higher levels, but any of those reductions in in uh, drinking is going to reduce your risk. I guess, like all things, our understanding of alcohol and its impact on the body continues to evolve. Yeah, I think so. And I think the guidelines reflect that that evolution. But I also would come back to the idea that the guidelines and, and our findings are very consistent with the over idea that even from the previous one, that above quite low levels of drinking, the, the you know, the risk starts to starts to increase. And so, again, I think the exact number may change, but the idea is that less is better is a, is a good one that I think I'm very confident will hold scientifically or in the coming decades. Well, Dr. Navy, thank you so much for your time. Well, Ben, thanks for having me. Have a good night. Accents. Accents. You know, it's it's funny in, in Canada, we often think that we really don't have much in the way of for, you know, Canadian born kids who grew up speaking English and learned English in this country. We often don't feel like there's a big difference in the way we speak this language from coast to coast. Clearly, there are parts of the Maritimes, for instance, St. John's, um, 
Newfoundland and Labrador, where there is a pronounced accent, maybe a little bit in in the Maritimes, but it seems to be relatively relatively neutral, certainly compared to a place like you know the UK or other places where accents change, you know, every five or six k, like in, in parts of Europe, but all over the world, right? Accents change a lot. Here we seem to change not too little. We do change more, though, I think, than our neighbors to the south, where their accents seem to change faster, depending on uh, from community to community or from region to region. And that's where this story comes in. One of the most watched things on social media this past week was a short 10-second clip posted on Twitter by a reporter named Ellie Fleming. She is the Massachusetts State House reporter, so the legislative reporter, for WWLP 22 News. And the caption to her tweet was this. Sometimes that Boston accent slips out when you least expect it. Here's why. Parts of this bill are similar to the executive orders that have already been put in place in New Hampshire. New Hampshire. Yeah, New Hampshire. Now, I grew up in Bo- I grew up in Montreal, right? So I've been to Boston. We had lots of tourists from Boston would come to Montreal. So you kind of got used to the way they spoke with an accent, a very distinctive one at that. Um, a remind- what a reminder of the accents that we may have and how we tend to try to mask them in certain situations. One more time. Well, let's do it one more time. Parts of this bill are similar to the executive orders that have already been put in place in New Hampshire. New Hampshire. Once again, that got me thinking about the noticeable difference between that Boston accent and the way, say, English sounds not that far away across the border in, you know, New Brunswick or in in Quebec or in Ontario um, compared to here at home. A bit about the origins of that Boston accent and how we all have a way, tend to have a way of filtering the way we speak, just as I am right now, uh, depending on who we find us, who we find ourselves talking to who we're speaking to, how we're speaking, when we're speaking, and so on. Um, Joining me now with more on this is Naomi Neji. She is a professor of linguistics. She has a bit of a specialty in that New England accent, too, although she is based here in Canada at the University of Toronto. Uh, Naomi Neji, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. It's fun to think back to New England accents after being in Toronto for over a decade. I I guess you don't hear as many as you would in other parts, eastern parts of the country. What did you think of that video? I mean, I thought it was it was a pretty incredible moment of that, you know, the accent slipping out as we're as is wont to do sometimes. It was beautiful. I mean, as she said, her phrase that ended with the word New Hampshire, it all was perfectly fine. You hear that all the time. But then she had this amazing facial reaction where she just suddenly rejudged herself and felt, oops, I wasn't supposed to say that when I have my professional voice on. And I think it's so telling about how people feel about accents and how we feel like anything that really distinguishes us from other people, we have to hide it and and kind of bury it or bury it, depending on what accent we want to use. I guess, yeah. And and so it wasn't until she made that face that I think anybody would have even noticed that there was anything odd about it. But I guess people who work in media professionally, just like professors, we monitor ourselves so carefully when we talk in front of people. And we really notice when we that we think belongs in a different um, genre or in a different context. Yeah. Under what circumstances are we, do we self-edit like that? Because I imagine it's not just professionals, but anybody in sort of, whether it be in in sort of, make, you know, a, a new crowd of people that you don't know, or in a business environment with people you don't necessarily know that well, I imagine most people try to mask their accents a little bit. I think that's true. I think all of us are real social chameleons and we can change the way we talk according to the context. And maybe some of us just become more conscious of it. But I think we all do that in a uh, without thinking about it quite a lot. The, the Boston accent, though, I mean, that that specific Boston accent is a pretty hard one to miss, right? I mean, I think, you know, any any time in Mon- growing up in Montreal, obviously, we used to get a lot of tourists from Boston. You know that accent right away. Where does it come from? I mean, if we dig back, it seemed from England, like most North American English accents do. England has parts of the of its country where ours are pronounced and other parts where they're not pronounced. And when people emigrated hundreds of years ago from England to North America, they kind of stayed with people from the same part of England. And so we have parts of North America that have been settled by people from the R-dropping part of England. And that includes Boston and that whole 
Eastern New England cultural hearth, as the techies like to call it. And we have people from the R-full parts of England, very careful pronouncing R-full, that settled in other areas and brought the R's with them. And then we had within New England people moving around. So people from Boston actually moved up into New Hampshire and into Maine and brought their R-less accent with them. So one of the things that I remember the best from when I was teaching linguistics at the University of New Hampshire is about half of my students would be from New Hampshire and the other half would be from Massachusetts near Boston. And whenever we got to talking about dialects, the Boston students would all talk about those New Hampshire people who dropped the as. And the New Hampshire students would talk about those Baston people who dropped their as. And it was for some of them the first time really getting to know people from the other place and realizing that they each had a stereotype that the other does that. But they didn't really realize that actually to an outsider, they sound pretty much the same. Isn't that always the way? And then yeah. and then yet here we are, not too, too far. I mean, if you're living in Montreal, you're only about a six hour drive from not from New York, closer to New Hampshire. And you're not that far from Boston. And yet the accent is uh, is it almost in- completely different. I think well, completely. That's, That's not completely, right. but close enough. Yeah. So the people who moved from Boston on up into New Hampshire and Maine, I guess, didn't also cross the border. And I don't actually know too much about what uh, the exact settlement patterns in Montreal, but I'm guessing based on how strong the R is that there's just a lot more Scottish and Northern English people that settled there than the Boston area. Yeah. And it's, it's uh, when you look at, at sort of the way that people born in Canada speak English uh, in general and Boston too, what I find fascinating is that it doesn't matter where your parents are from generally everyone kind of starts to adopt very similar accents if they live somewhere else. So if you're a first-generation kid growing up in Boston, you're probably going to sound like a Bostonian to a Torontonian, right? And vice versa. Yes, definitely to an outsider, you'll sound like you fit in. How is that? Is it just Is it just you, you just mimic what you hear? I guess we mimic what we hear because what else would we do? I mean, if we keep speaking with our outsider accent, then we're going to have trouble being accepted in our new place. And so I think there's a lot of people who have one accent that they use with their friends, peers, coworkers, where they move to, but they still revert back to another accent um, when they talk to family who didn't move with them. So my family moved from uh, out to Nebraska when I was little, and I had a dad from Montreal and a mom from New York City. Wow. And my dad, when he got on the phone to talk to his parents in Montreal, he switched to Hungarian. That was super obvious. But my mom... Her parents were in New York City and her accent in English changed so much when she talked to them. I thought it was a different person talking. Imagine a man from Montreal, a woman from New York City living in Nebraska where the accent there again is different, right? Completely different. And they both had to learn not to use their own accents in order to fit in. I mean, for my mom, I think she probably couldn't have even gotten a job if she had had that East Coast snotty smart kid accent. Well, that was the stereotype that went with the way she talked. So she had to change it fast. Yeah, no, I, I guess we... Now, why is it that when you cross the border into Canada, it feels like the accents don't change as much from coast to coast. I mean, certainly if you get in, get onto the East Coast, they change, obviously, Newfoundland and Labrador, but there just isn't as much variance I, I've always found between, say, you know, um, Ottawa and Victoria as there is between, say, what you see as you cross America between uh, right. Boston all the way through the Midwest, where the accent gets very distinctive, then all the way out here to the West Coast, where it sort of flattens again. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think that part of it has to do with how much empty space and smaller towns there are between the big points where we know what Canadian English sounds like. And there also just has been far less research about the dialect variation uh, in Canada. So I don't know how much what people think they hear actually depends on what linguists have published. I maybe don't believe that that has so much of an effect. But we don't actually have a whole lot of facts beyond research that my colleague at McGill, Charles Boberg, has Mm -hmm. done. He's one of the few people who's really tried to map things out across the across the country. But he does find, uh, just like you said, that if we leave out Quebec and the Atlantic provinces, things are pretty consistent. And I think it maybe partly has to do with migration 
patterns of people just kind of moving more uniformly. And and aside from things like massive Ukrainian population in the Prairie provinces, been there a long time. Well, yeah, yeah so they wouldn't affect the English. I guess, yeah, the that the people who've settled the Western part of Canada, if they're English speakers, they came from Eastern Canada rather than directly from England or Scotland. Right. And so they've there's been just that kind of homogeneity maintained because of the origins of, of English speakers. And it is just going back to the video that we started off with. It is always remarkable, though, to see to see how accents come and go in, in, in language or how you manage to change them, because I find oftentimes that uh, I, I don't think there's anything that I say that I change. And I was watching her speak that and think it must be interesting to have a job where you speak publicly, but feel like you can't speak the way sometimes your brain says it's New Hampshire, not New Hampshire. Right. And, and it would be strange to have to have that uh, edit button on. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I it's, this is the beginning of a new semester, so I'm in the process of meeting new groups of students and standing up in front of them and talking to them and trying to get them to relax and feel comfortable enough to talk back. And so I do talk quite a bit about my own edit button and how how aware I am of the differences in how I speak when I'm in my professor mode versus my at-home mode. And it can be stressful, but it's also entertaining and I think it's kind of nice to become aware that we all have this tool that we can use to manipulate others, right? We can change the way we talk to sound more like or less like other people. And that has subtle but really important effects. I think maybe the issue with the video, though, was that she maybe felt like she was coming across as making fun of and that maybe she doesn't think it's part of her own authentic accent. And I, of course, don't know if it is or not. But when we imitate other accents that aren't our own, we're, we're treading on dangerous turf where it can either be funny or it can be seen as really making fun of and, and othering another group. So, yeah, I, I mean, lots of people over the years think they can do a good accent and don't. I'm sure I'm, I'm sure I'm amongst them. You know, every once in a while, you think, oh, I lived in Scotland for a while. You think I'll never do that again. I'll never do that again. <laughs> Naomi Neji, thank you so much for your time. That was uh, that was fascinating stuff. Thanks. That was a treat to take a break from uh, heritage languages. So if you're part of the uh, breakfast club generation, as I am, uh, Gen X, so to speak, it was really, I mean, you probably know more about Madonna than you'd ever care to admit. I certainly do. And I realized that today when she announced that she was going out on tour, not just any tour, um, it was 40 years ago this year. Actually, it was 40 years ago this month that she made her first TV appearance uh, singing Everybody, which was one of her minor hits before the album came out and Holiday became the big hit or the first big hit. Uh, 40 years ago this year, the dancer from Detroit, Madonna Louise Ciccone, burst onto the scene with Holiday. Um, and it paved the way for 37 up, other top 40 hits, number one albums, movies, marriages, scandals, you name it. It's been quite the career. I mean, she is the best-selling female artist uh, of all time, as far as I know, 300 million albums. There are others catching up at this point, but she still holds that title. It has been an incredibly successful career um, and full of all kinds of twists and turns as well. So she may appear to have done it all, but the one thing the 64-year-old had never done before is a greatest hits tour. That is until now. Um, The Material Girl announced a 35-date world journey this morning. It will kick off in Canada, no less. Vancouver on July 15th. That is day one, July 15th in Vancouver. Um, Madonna announced the celebration tour with a wink to her 1991 film, Truth or Dare, in a video posted online. It features other artists such as Diplo, Judd Apatow, Jack Black, Lil Wayne, Bob the Drag Queen, who will be the opening act on the tour, and Amy Schumer daring the Madonna to go on tour to perform her biggest hits. Have a listen. All those songs? Yes. As in, we're talking we're like talking, a virgin. We're talking open your heart. We're talking tropical on the island breeze. Yeah, yeah. All of nature wild and free. This is where I long to be. La Isla Bonita. Wait, hold up. That's a lot of songs. It's a lot of songs. You think people would come to that show? I'll be there. Well, I'll be there. You there? Oh, yeah, I'm there. Um, yeah, she goes on to say that she will do it in uh, in more colorful language. There's a lot of colorful language in it. That's why we didn't play too, too much of it. But you get the hint. 
Uh, so again, kicks off July 15th at the Rogers Centre in Vancouver. It ends on December 1st in Amsterdam. Uh, there are stops in Toronto on August 13th, Montreal on August 19th. Uh, this is her 12th tour. She went on the road back in 29, 2020. It was a smaller venue kind of thing. Uh, but again, you know, incredible record of success. So it is a big deal. It is a big deal. And because it's starting in Canada, we thought, hey, let's talk about it tonight. So we went out to look for someone who would be particularly excited about the idea that not only was Madonna launching a world tour, but she was going to launch it here on Canadian soil. Um, and we found Philip Tetro. He already has his tickets. Floor tickets in Vancouver. There was a pre-sale today for Legacy fans, those who signed up years ago on her website. Um, he's a self-professed Madonna fanatic. And as I mentioned, he'll be in Vancouver for the kickoff on uh, of this tour on July 15th. So less than six months away now. And Philip Tetro joins me from Toronto to share his Madonna expertise. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Ben. Thank you so much for having me. So this is must be an exciting day to know that, I mean... That she's not only going on tour, but she's going on a 40th anniversary tour. So that means all the hits. Yeah, it's a very exciting day. I mean, not even 10 hours ago did we even know that a tour existed. And all of a sudden, we know that she's doing a greatest hits tour, which she's never done before. It's the first time that she's touring without promoting a new album or releasing new music for the first time in her career. So it is a big day for the Madonna community, for sure. And I would imagine a big day for the Madonna community in Canada, too, because she's not only not only does she have three dates in Canada or three playing three cities, she's opening in Vancouver, which is remarkable in of itself. It is remarkable. I mean, I thought when two tours ago she went to Edmonton and to hear Madonna say, let's go Edmonton in the middle of like a virgin, if that wasn't surreal enough. Yeah, opening a tour in Vancouver is pretty cool. And I actually got tickets to the Vancouver show because it's been a dream of mine uh, my entire life to go see a Madonna concert on opening night where nobody knows the set list. I don't know what her costumes are going to be. I don't know how she's going to look, what she's going to sing. I've seen a tour halfway to towards the end and you can tell she's sort of over it. And right. so I'm excited to see her excited to perform it for the very first time. Yeah, no pun intended. <laughs> That's uh, no pun intended. I know. No pun intended. I, I, I seem to yeah. quote uh, Madonna lyrics unintentionally, so I'll probably do that about nine or twelve times. Yeah, it was. It's exciting that she's starting in Vancouver as well. So tell me a bit about your your fandom because I realize it started very young. It started with yes. with, with with a lot of people find artists through greatest hits. It's it's a great way to discover an artist. But was it the Immaculate Collection, her first collection, that really swung you to Madonna Madonna fandom? Well, I just don't remember a day in my life without her. So I was a year old when the Immaculate Collection came out. But right. as the as the story goes, uh, my mom listened to Madonna cassettes when she was pregnant with me. And so she takes full responsibility right. for my insane obsession with Madonna. And um, yeah, I just I don't remember a day in my life without her. She's just always been she's just always been a part of me and always been a part of my daily life. And her music has been a timestamp on every major milestone that I've experienced. Remarkably, what do you, what do you think? Because there have been other artists over time, right, that have come and gone over the years. Especially, I guess, uh, when you were growing up, Madonna's very much a you know I'm fifty, so very fifty one two now, very much of my generation, right? Um, it's always nice to meet kids from different people from different generations who loved her just as much because you had your own stars too. What was it about Madonna that that you really um, that you found so appealing? I just think her like her no holds barred attitude, her comfort with sexuality her always uplifting the underdog and supporting marginalized communities, her absolute just love for the gay community, the black community, Hispanic community. She was always there for people who didn't have a voice and pre social media, pre black lives matter, pre all of that, where Madonna got in a lot of trouble for promoting homosexuality and promoting having gay people in her or having black people in her music videos was a big deal back then and it was just like she never cared and she never stooped to any level that people wanted her to, to to go down like she was always always had something to say and never faltered yeah dare was always a pretty good moniker for her because she was never afraid dare, to do and as soon yeah. as you tell madonna not to do something she'll do it tenfold any i mean when you think back to those earliest memories there must have been certain songs that really appealed to you i mean the great thing about this to go back to it is that it's the greatest hits to her now i know that's not what everyone always wants to see but man, is it great when an artist gets out and just plays their hits. It, it's amazing. And um, the problem with Madonna, I don't know if this is a problem per se, but she never likes looking back. She, it's, 
she always wants to look forward and like anytime she's in an interview and they ask her about a song that's over let's say five or ten years old she doesn't want to focus on that she doesn't want to talk about that she's moved forward from it so for her now 40 years into her career at 64 years old finally just relenting and giving people what they want like I'm so excited to see what she does because she's never done it before. And to not have brand new songs that not everybody will know, like from a new album, like filling in the gaps, it's going to be all all fun, all hits, all songs that we recognize. I hope that she goes to a couple number ones that she's never performed live before. Really? Um, Which ones are those? Yeah. I mean, actually, you know, I, I've, 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 I've seen a lot of concerts. I'm sad to say I've never seen Madonna. Maybe this time, hopefully, if the tickets aren't all sold out. Because they are pretty, I was looking, they're pretty steep on the resale sections already. But what hasn't she played? Do you remember the film um, A League of Their Own? I do, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Perfect. So the song for that for that film was uh, "This Used to Be My Playground." She's right. never performed that song live, and that was a number really? one. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it, was a huge, would, it was a huge hit. Huge hit. Um, there's a song I'll remember from "With Honors." Yep. Which was a film in 1994. She's never performed that live before. There's just like a couple of like songs that were bigger, per, like in Europe, that weren't as right. big in North America. So, and if it didn't hit, like the top 20 she thinks that we hate it but it's like there's a lot of cult classics that are hidden in there that she released and just because they didn't make it to number one does not mean we don't want to hear the madonna so i really hope that she she does a deep dive into those songs as well yeah it's always nice when artists because it's it's funny if you get a group that are that dedicated to seeing an artist oftentimes if they pull a few of the lesser hits that have become much loved over years people love that people love seeing that i was trying you know i can think of many examples of bands playing songs that weren't giant smashes but that fans love them right and it's like a gift it's absolutely a gift and i mean like she has pulled out some songs that i never thought i would ever see her perform live like on the rebel heart tour in 2015 she performed true blue which was a song that she wrote for sean penn in 1986 i never thought she would perform that again and she she shocked us with that one and that was a beautiful performance i really hope that she just like gives us what we want this time and and so far she's she's doing what we want she's she's in it for the gays so <laughs> we're really excited you're excited for it. the the one thing about a Madonna concert too is it's uh, as you mentioned right off the top it's not just the set list it's it's the design it's the stage it's the set it's it's her it's what she's wearing it's who's with her it's the whole kit and caboodle it's a as spectacle. we say it's an absolute spectacle, like from stage design to lighting, to effects, to dancers, to choreography, to like you you blink your eyes and there's another, there's a brand new backdrop video on the screen. And then she comes out from underground or she flies in from another stage. And it's just like, there's always something to look at. Like you're never bored and they fly by, which I'm really like, I have now seven months to sort of like wrap my head around the fact that I'm going to an opening night of a Madonna concert in Vancouver, which where I've never been before. And I'm excited to go there too. Uh, but like, the, it, yeah, you'll love the city too. I can't wait. It's just, I, I'm really excited. I, I imagine you saw the video, right? Announcing it, this, the sort of <laughs> the truth or death. I did. Yeah, I uh, did. That was really funny. I never thought I would ever see Madonna French kiss Jack Black, but no, <laughs> no, exactly. But it was it was strange to think that this was all in the works. I mean, for a while, and yet it never leaked. It, as far as I could tell, there were no rumors about her going on tour. Certainly not locally. And all of a sudden, there it is. You know, like a world tour. It's a world tour, and you can sort of tell she does this all the time, where she'll only she'll release the tickets to like one or two dates in a certain city, but then leave a gap before the following date. So it's like she she is planning for like there's four or five day gaps in between in between the dates that she's already released. So I'm sure that she's going to keep on adding more and more dates, and she hasn't announced the dates for Australia or Asia yet. So those are still about to be released as well. So I think it's going to be one of her biggest tours, and she's up against Taylor Swift for tour of the year. So wow. I don't think she's going to let little Swifty take it from her. Oh, I have a technical producer who might disagree with you on that one. Really? <laughs> Philip, Philip Detro is with us this half hour. He is a Madonna super fan, of course. Uh, Madonna announcing her uh, 35-city Live Nation back Madonna the Celebration Tour, which will kick off on July 15th at none other than Rogers Arena in Vancouver. Imagine she's kicking off this big world tour um, in Vancouver on July the 15th. Tickets are already on sale to some, such as Philip, who already has his. Uh, how is it working? Because, of course, the Taylor Swift concert was a tour created all kinds of mayhem. How's this one been so far when it came to getting your tickets today? It was it was really easy. I mean, I have been a part of the uh, Madonna Icon fan club for 
like 20 years. Right. And so I'm what's known as a legacy member. And so as soon as the video came out announcing the tour, they sent all the legacy members their individual pre-sale codes. And it was easy. It was like we were in the, it took less than five minutes to get our tickets. And there you go. You got tickets on the floor too, right? I did. I got tickets on the floor. Were they massively expensive? Can I bother you to ask you? Oh, I would love to tell you. I mean, I was prepared. My my best friend David and I were prepared to spend. We were like, okay, if they're fifteen hundred bucks, like we'll do it. It's opening night. We'll yeah. do it. Yeah. Uh, but they were six hundred bucks each. That's not bad. That's not bad. Not floor bad seats. at all. Let's go down through the years then. So, favorite Madonna song. I know that's a really tough question, but everyone has a favorite. I, mine's Holiday. Always will always be Holiday. That's a great choice. Mine is Like a Prayer. Ah, Like a Prayer is a good one. Good one. Best Madonna album. Best Madonna album, Ray of Light. Yeah, Ray of Light's a good one. I like the first one, but again, you know, everything matters to you when you're 13. Best video, because there, God, there were a lot of them. Are we talking in terms of like iconic imagery and like yeah, what just, just yeah, the one, yeah, the one that most defines her. Not even just Vogue. the track. Yeah, I agree. I was going to say Vogue. Now, best concert that you've seen her in so far? Oh, that's a great question. The MDNA tour in 2012. I was in the pit with my mom and my sister, and it was wow. like. It was a, triangu- a triangular pit and the, the stage like wrapped around us. It was unbelievable. She danced more in the first number than Beyonce danced her entire tour that I saw a couple years later. And of course, you're, you mentioned this already. Your mom listened to Madonna when she was pregnant with you. So there you are watching Madonna on stage 10 years ago. Yeah, I mean, I've taken my mom three times to see Madonna now, twice on the floor. Remarkable. Does she still? She must still love Madonna, right? She does. I mean, I, I live with my mom now, so I think she's sort of sick of hearing Madonna on a daily basis. But the problem, my biggest flaw is that I, I harmonize and scream Madonna songs all day long. Last question for you. A Madonna song that few people know that they should really listen to. I mean, it depends on your mood, right? Like there are certain yeah. ballads that I think every every non-Madonna fan should know. She has a song called Oh Father from the Like a Prayer album that is right. just so orchestral and beautiful just absolutely haunting. And it was a pinnacle of her as a songwriter and as a storyteller. Yeah, I remember that track. That's a really good track. Yeah, I'll go with, I'll go with, uh, I always, I always like, yeah, probably Dress You Up. Dress You Up's a really cool, but that goes way back. That's like, like a virgin, right? But that's, that's, uh, that was kind of a hit, but not a big hit, but that's a good track. It was, or, it, it, it was, a, it was a pretty big hit actually. And Dress yeah. You Up is just like, yeah, it's just like, it's brainless and it's fun and it's cute yeah. and it's pop. Exactly. Philip Tetro. I look forward to your trip out west to where we are to see Madonna on July the 15th at Rogers Arena in Vancouver. You must be, uh, yeah, well, only six months away, less than six months away. (laughs) There you go. I know. I can't wait. Thank you so much for having me. Well, the new inflation numbers are out for December, as they're always, you know, we always get last month's, this month's makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, Some good news and some not so good news. In them, lower gasoline prices meant that the overall rate fell to just over 6%. So we are seeing it move ever so slowly downwards towards that Bank of Canada target of around 2%. But food prices stayed high, up 11% compared with December of last year, of 2021 at this point. Uh, here is here is Lynn Charbonneau explaining exactly what that means. With uh, world commodity, like agricultural prices coming down, we had hoped to see more of a deceleration. I think what's going on here is that a lot of what we buy in stores is heavily transformed, and there's been pressures all along the the, the chain, right? So from workers uh, having higher wages to transportation costs to all kinds of things that have fed through. That is CIBC Executive Director, Director of Economics, Karine Charbonneau, uh, saying that economists had hoped to see grocery prices slow more noticeably as agricultural prices fell, but explaining that the complex uh, supply chain system, of course, we have not seen that yet. It continues to send shockwaves through the entire food ecosystem in this country, and that includes school meal programs. While demand is up, Breakfast Club of Canada spokesperson Judith Barry, for instance, it says it grew 60 to 100% in some districts across this country during the pandemic. Costs are also up. A Vancouver Sun report from September found that the Surrey School District had about 2,000 students 
in its meal programs and that there were, quote, significant budget pressures due to inflation on food and transportation prices. Uh, Of course, we know this because families are going to be paying more for food in 2023 across the board. Uh, So it's everyone is being squeezed everywhere. And of course, one of the most obvious places to help kids out is through school programs. This is on Ottawa's radar in budget 2019. The federal government announced it would work with the provinces and territories on creating a national school food program. I believe consultations on that have just wrapped up. But joining me now with more on this is Sam Gambling, project coordinator with the BC chapter of the Coalition for Healthy School Food, and Serena Kaner, who's president and executive director of the Swap Food Action Society in Salmon Arm in the interior of BC. Thank you both tonight. Hi, thanks for having us. Serena, perhaps I'll start with you because you're right on the front lines of all this. Um, how much of impact are you seeing from these, from really the price increases we've seen over the last 12, 13 months in food? Yeah, we're noticing a, a big increase in, in our numbers in our in our food programs. And, and I, you know, I speak to a lot of schools um, and I think all school meal programs are, are feeling that. Um, and, you know, we also do emergency food aid, like family food boxes. And, and you know, we're also... Um, noticing that it's harder to buy enough food to fill the boxes and, and that more people are wanting them. Right, so you're seeing increased prices for yourself and increased demand. Have you seen a change in the clientele? Is it, is it, is it changing in front of your eyes? Um, I, you know, I don't see the, like, we serve the students at school, and, and so I don't, I don't really know where they live. I don't know, you know, and, and I think that you can't really tell by looking at a student, <laughs> you know, what no, no, economic yeah. class they're in. No, exactly. so, I meant more by the, by the food boxes, yeah. Um, oh, yeah, no, by the, yeah. The, the price of stuff, I mean, how much is that impacting your bottom line? Everyone knows how more expensive a bag of groceries is, but when you're trying to provide um, food to students, emergency boxes to families, you must see your prices increase pretty dramatically. Yeah, I mean, just as an example, uh, like we have a soup program and, and uh, the soup stock that we used to buy, you know, two years ago was seven forty nine, and it, now it's eleven forty nine. So it's gone up, you know, $4, which is about 35%. Um, you know, eggs used to be five dozen, five dollars a dozen, and now they're seven. So, um, yeah, there's there's been really noticeable changes in price. Uh, well, then how do you how do you stretch the dollar then, Serena? In this case, well, in in our school food, I mean, we're lucky that we're a registered charity, and so we're not trying to make money. <laughs> um, and and so we just have to fundraise more money. I, I you know, essentially, um, the we're we're trying to keep our prices low because there is a sort of feeling of what parents can afford to pay, you know, especially if you've got more than one kid at a school, um, you know, it's, it's really expensive to pay for a daily food program. So, I mean, our experience has been that you can't really charge more than $5 or your numbers start dropping because people can't afford it. Um, but then, you know, we try and subsidize families that can't support it. And I would say on average, you know, at any school, about 75% of the student population can afford to pay, and then you're having to find money for the other 25%. And Sam, gambling, when you look across uh, the province and the country, you must be seeing a very similar story, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so all across BC and across Canada, programs are definitely struggling with the increased price of food. Um, so Serena is definitely not... Uh, you know, out of the ordinary right now. Um, And we're hearing that programs are either having to kind of reduce the quality of food that's served or the the types of food, um, reduce the serving sizes or the number of kids that served uh, in order to um, maintain the same, the same numbers. So there's definitely a, um, there's definitely a crunch across the country. And how much, I mean, as, as Serena was mentioning, there is fundraising to be done, right? But that takes time and that takes work. And you can obviously rely on the generosity of, of, of others that it works. But uh, how much if, of this is, is reliant on donations? How much of it is coming in from official sources, provinces, municipal governments, and so on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, most of it right now in our existing kind of patchwork of programs uh, model that exists across Canada and across B.C., um, most of it re- is reliant on funding uh, and in-kind donations from school community members and from uh, from local sources, and um, that results essentially in, in this uh, inequitable distribution of, of resources in, in that like some schools have the ability to fundraise and they really have wonderful programs and, and a, a school champion that kind of leads this program 
um, and other schools don't have access to those resources and don't have the school champion or, or someone, you know, uh, retires or they um, graduate and then you don't have the same level of investment in a program. So it really differs across the country. Uh, and so where the Coalition for Healthy School Food is coming in is, is we see a real need um, for public investment from both federal and provincial and territorial governments um, to ensure that all students across the country have access to healthy food at school uh, and, and equitable access to those resources. One would think that what we've seen in the past while with food inflation is just a reminder of how important, of how valuable a spot schools are for making sure that kids are well fed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Schools have such a, they really level the playing field in terms of, of access to healthy food and food literacy. Um, and there's a lot of research that shows that demonstrates the value of uh, school meal programs, not just um, to support access to healthy food, but also in terms of uh, academic outcomes, um, mental health and, and well-being and feelings of connection and, and, um, and belonging. So there's some real benefits to school food programs for all students. Serena, and one when, of the things... Yeah, oh, sure, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say to add to what Sam was saying is, you know, one of the huge benefits of school meal programs is kids will often eat food at school, food at schools that they would be hesitant to eat in their own homes. Um, we have a few school meal programs, you know, and I always have parents telling me, oh, you know, I wish my kid would eat that if I made it. And and it's just being around their friends and sharing the same food as their friends is a really powerful way of getting kids to, to eat more vegetables or eat, you know, some foods that right. they wouldn't eat at home. I'm picturing six-year-olds bond, bonding over a Brussels sprout, but that's, yeah, uh, totally. I, don't, I don't know that. I don't know <laughs> no, that it's, happens. It happens. It's real. Yeah. Um, tell me, Serena, are you hearing the same thing? Like because of the way the system works, the patchwork nature of it. I know I was reading an article about you recently. You've obviously done a really good job uh, where you are, and people are really happy about what's happened uh, with Shoe Swap Food Action Society. But is does it really take a lot of coordination and a lot of effort to make it happen? And other areas just don't have that champion, as Sam was mentioning, and therefore uh, there's a gap there. Oh, absolutely. I mean, schools are not resourced to, to run meal programs. Um, and, and the reason we started doing it was because, you know, we had schools in very critical, dangerous situations where, you know, when COVID hit, um, students weren't allowed to leave school. So we had a high school that had no, you know, no meal program in the school, but the kids weren't allowed to leave the school. So they couldn't, you know, walk down to the corner store and get chips and pop. <laughs> they couldn't, so they actually had no access to food. Um, and, and so, you know, and this, this, this happened across the province. Um, so yeah, the, the, you know, I'm, my training is I, I am actually a registered dietitian and, you know, part of why I went into this work is, is because, you know, there is a critical need and, and I don't think anyone's saving money by, by not offering kids healthy food. You know, there's been a lot of people talking about the impact, of course, of food inflation. It has been rising. It has been above overall inflation for months and months and months now. Uh, we know that up at 11% again in December. That's uh, compared to December of the year earlier. That's the second month in a row. I think it's been over 11%. And we all noticed it at the grocery store. So we got to thinking, where else is it having an impact? And one of the areas it's clearly having an impact is on school food programs, right? Which are vitally important uh, in many communities to making sure all kids have equal opportunity to eat well um, and to get the food they need. I'm speaking with Sam Gambling, who's project coordinator of the BC chapter of the Coalition for Healthy School Food, and Serena Kaner, who's president and executive director of the Shoeswap Food Action Society in Salmon Arm in BC's interior. Uh, Sam, tell me a bit about this national program, because I was looking back over, it was sort of uh, proposed, I think, back in 2019. I think there's been consultations. Mm -hmm. Where are we at with it? Yeah, so um, back in 2021, the federal government made a campaign promise in their party platform uh, towards a national school nutritious meal program with a $1 billion investment over five years. Um, and then uh, in budget 2022, they reiterated their commitment to developing a national school food policy. Uh, but so far, we haven't seen any dollars put towards meal programs from the federal government. So um, there were some consultations this winter. And now we are saying, the coalition is saying it's time to move forward with a program in budget 2023 um, and put some dollars towards school food in budget 2023 to make sure healthy food is available to all kids at school 
uh, regardless of their ability, regardless, yeah, of their ability of their families to pay. Right. How would it work with federal money into that kind of system? Because obviously education is provincial and there's all kinds you mentioned. It's mm-hmm. a real patchwork. How how would the federal system work uh, obje- in the best case scenario? Yeah, so we see a cost-shared approach between both federal and provincial and territorial governments where um, there would be a federal investment uh, and we are advocating that funding go directly to provinces and territories um, to support their existing school food programs with some additional funding being put in by provinces and territories towards um, the existing school food programs and to the development of new school food programs. So here in BC, for example, we're also advocating to the BC government um, to invest in school food in budget 2023. And we're hoping that that cost-shared approach between the federal and the provincial governments will be enough to support school districts and school communities to uh, both ex- expand and, and enrich current programs and also to develop new programs. I guess, Sam, and you were mentioning this earlier, one of the challenges is that the programs are of different sort of, uh, maybe quality is the wrong word, but of different strength depending on the area and who's running it, right? So you have a bit of that patchwork of, of capacity as well. How do, you, how do you tackle that? I guess it's not just money, right? Yeah, it's definitely not just money. Yeah, there's a, there's a real need for supporting resources, for human resources, for example. So making sure that there's dedicated staff for meal programs uh, within each school district ideally within each school, but we know it's going to be a phased approach and that this is going to grow every year. So so um, recognizing where school communities are at is really important and being adaptable and flexible with funding to support both the planning of meal programs and then uh, the eventual kind of implementation and expansion of meal programs. Um, and, and that will involve, like I said, human resources, also some funding for infrastructure. We want to make sure that all schools have have adequate infrastructure to prepare food, to store food, to eat food. Um, so it's it's a big project and there's many moving pieces, but ultimately communities are already working on it and they just need some support. Yeah, Serena, from, from where you sit uh, or stand, uh, where would this help uh, in terms of you? I guess reliable funding would be a big would be a big bonus. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that for you know from our perspective. Funding is is the most critical piece. Um, you know, I, I think, like Sam said, communities have, have been working on school food for, for decades. Um, and but it's every year it's a scramble to find to find, you know, volunteers and money and all these things. And and we've noticed a huge difference in like volunteerism, um, really? you know, since covid uh, so just fewer, just fewer people, right? Fewer, fewer people, people volunteering, right? Yeah, and 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 I think that's across, you know, in all nonprofits, um, and and you know, many reasons. You know, a lot of people don't feel safe. Um, you know, a lot of people have to go back to work or are working in a different capacity. Or, but but volunteers. Um, it used to be that school packs would would do like would run school meal programs, and I I had three schools this year turn down. Our, our program, like we make soup and we'll deliver it to your school, but then you still need to have someone to actually serve the soup. And, and we have right. lots of schools to be like, I'd really love to run this program, but I can't find anyone to serve this soup to the students. <laughs> and so, yeah. you know, that didn't used to be a problem. It, it I mean it, it doesn't sound that much. It doesn't sound that much different from the way school food programs ran when I was in primary school, and this goes back a long time. I mean, I guess we've always sort of had to try to make do, and maybe it's time for um, something more comprehensive. I just worry sometimes that you know, when, if Ottawa gets involved, then you sort of then there are rules and guidelines, and 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 the whole thing gets a bit bureaucratized, and maybe you don't want that either. Mm-hmm. We're really looking to the recent successes with the child care accords to kind of demonstrate right. uh, what this could look like, um, where there's some real collaboration and there's a lot of flexibility and adaptability with some high level guiding principles that ensure conflict of interest safeguards and, and uh, that ensure some of those kind of big pieces are are, um, are supporting uh, the meal programs, but allowing for the school communities to really define uh, what the program looks like, whether that's breakfast, lunch, snacks, um, what time, kind of what food is served, depending on the school community and, and the culture. Um, so we really want to make sure that programs are, are flexible and reflect the needs of their school community. 
Well, Sam Gambling and Serena Kaner, thank you so much for your time tonight. It's been uh, eye-opening. <laughs> thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on this. Thank you. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the great white north and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.